Good morning, church, once again. A Bible reading is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 to 10. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 to 10. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which down men in destruction and perdition. Verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some covet after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This is the word of the Lord. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in the book of James, James chapter 5, and I might just encourage you to grab a piece of paper and drop it over in Luke chapter 12 as well, James chapter 5 and Luke chapter 12. We return back to the epistle of James this morning, and I'll admit I did not think as we were planning out our preaching calendar, I did not think we would still be in the book of James at this point in the year. I had hoped to have completed the book of James before we came to youth camp. However, uh, we ended up spending more time in the book of James than I had originally planned. I think, however, that it has been good for us. I believe the taking the time to walk through the epistle and not rush through it has been profitable for our church. I've seen the Lord do some good things, as many of you have come with good questions, and I believe even we've seen a season of salvation based on the fact that we have taken the theme to heart. We've examined our faith. The epistle of James we'll pick up in chapter 5 today. James has had a theme running throughout his book. His theme has been examine your faith, and he does this ten times throughout the epistle Uh, Some have said that perhaps, and I think this is a mistake to think this way, some have said that the epistle of James is like the book of Proverbs for the New Testament, almost as if it was, here's a way to live, here's a way to live, here's a way to live, here's a way to live. And I don't think that at all. I see the epistle from the James, the brother of Jesus, I see his epistle as a statement largely written to believers as he says, examine your faith, and here's ten different ways to examine your faith. Think with me, uh, the setting, historical setting for the writing of the epistle. It's been 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus when he writes this. This is James, the brother of Jesus, not the Apostle James. The Apostle James was martyred in Acts chapter 12. It's too early for that apostle to be the one who writes this book. So this is James, the brother of Jesus, and he's going to repeat the words of Jesus in our passage today. There's words that Jesus used that James repeats. 
And, and as he gives this uh, epistle, he writes to those young believers. They've been scattered abroad. And if you remember the book of Acts, in chapter 4, the church began to see oppression, persecution, as Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel. They healed the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple. They healed that lame man. The uh, leaders of the temple said, Who, by whose name do you heal? They said, we heal in the name of Jesus. And those leaders of the temple said, don't you ever say his name again. Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than men. That was the beginning of the persecution. And if that were a song, that song built and built and built until it hit its crescendo in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen stands to preach and he declares the gospel in the name of Jesus, and those people with one voice ran upon him, gnashed him with their teeth, dragged him outside the city, and stoned him. And great was the persecution that arose from that. So that when you come into Acts chapter 8, the church is then scattered abroad. All of the church is gone except for the apostles. The apostles are the only ones left, according to Acts 8. The only ones that are left in Jerusalem. The rest of those believers, on the low side, 8,000 of them. Perhaps on the high side, as many as 50,000 believers. This is a new religion, you can call it. A new religion that has popped up, and we know that today as Christianity. That time they called it the way. They didn't know what to call it at that time. We call it Christianity today. It was the birth of Christianity. And people were coming to Christ by the hundreds and by the thousands. And there were many people in the community that are just going, wow, Jesus changes that life and changes that life. I wonder if He can change my life. And people began to flock into the church. And then they hit persecution and they were scattered abroad. And James writes this epistle to those believers that are now scattered abroad. And he says to them overwhelmingly throughout this epistle, examine your faith. Faith. Check. Where's your heart? Have you just come and joined in with this group because you saw that there was a movement? And if I can echo James's words this morning to you, brothers and sisters, examine your faith. We, Capital City Baptist Church, have recently experienced a growth numerically to the point where halfway through the first song on Sunday morning, the ushers are struggling to find a place for you to sit. I'm thankful for that. But I say this loudly as I repeat the words of James. Examine your faith. Don't just say, I come to church and I'm good to go. Oh no, James says this loudly throughout his epistle over and over and over. Don't take it for granted. Don't think, oh, I come to church so I'm good to go with God. Oh no, there are tests. Are you truly a believer? And before we dive into chapter 5 this morning, I want to just take a moment and walk through the ones that we've already seen. You can see it back in chapter 1. Chapter 1 he asks a question. Uh, he doesn't say these words, but I can summarize them in this question. The question, the first one was, do you find joy in the midst of trials? 
Do you find joy in the midst of trials? If you do find joy in the midst of a trial, there's a really good chance that you're a true believer. But if the trial comes up in your life and you tend to go, no, wait, I think God hates me and that's why this trial has come up, well, there's a problem in your belief. And he said it in verse number two, my brethren, you hear the word? Brethren, true believers, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And he gave three examples of what those temptations would look like. In verse three, it was a trial of your faith. And in verse 5, it was a lack of wisdom. I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. And in verse 12, there is the enduring a temptation, as in a sinful temptation comes along, and what do you do with it? Thank you, Lord, for bringing this temptation into my life and allowing me to face it. And God, would you give me the strength to get through this? This is a trial, and I'm going to find joy in it. A true believer finds joy in temptation. And then the second one is in verse 19 to verse 27. And that question is this. Do you only hear the word? Or do you hear the word and do it? We had the easy way to see it was in verse 19. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And in verse 22, the exact commandment. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. If you're only a hearer, you deceive yourself. You're not a true believer. And then the third one was in chapter 2 and verse 1 down to verse 13. Do you play favoritism while you try to hold the faith of the Lord of glory? And that, that verse is in verse number 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. He who left the throne room of glory and set aside all of his riches so that he could humble himself and take on the form of a servant. How can you ever think that you'll hold on to that kind of faith and say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but somehow you play favoritism? Because you can't do that. A true believer doesn't do that. The fourth test is in verse 14 down. He says, do you say that you're a believer, but your actions actually say something else? You see it in verse 14. What, what does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and has not works? Can faith save him? You, you say, I've got my faith, and so God's going to give me a free pass into heaven, but your life does not match with what your talk says. You have faith, but you don't have any works. You don't have any action that goes along with what you say that you've got. And then in verse 20, he makes the statement, oh, Wilt thou not know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? How about number, four, number five? This is in chapter three. Are you able to control your tongue? The man who can control his tongue can control his whole body. It says it in verse two, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. If you're a true believer you'll recognize the times when your tongue gets you into trouble and you'll circle back around and you'll make things right with the person that you just offended with your tongue. But a person who's not a true believer will just go through life letting his tongue control his actions and then he will say, well, my tongue just led me down this road so my life will just go down this road. No, a true believer goes, no way, there's a right way that I'm supposed to live. I'm going to control my life and I'm going to do everything I can to control my tongue. And then a sixth one is in verses 13 to verse 18. Do you live by earthly wisdom or by 
heavenly wisdom. Who is wise, he says in verse 13, who is wise and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation, out of a good lifestyle, his works with meekness of wisdom. There's a heavenly way to live and there's an earthly way to live. And a true believer knows the difference and tries to follow after the heavenly wisdom. Number seven is in chapter four. Are you changed by the gospel or are you controlled by your lust? A true believer will be changed by the gospel. You can see in chapter 4 and verse 1. From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Your body is lusting. And when you allow your body to lust, you will end up in fights and wars. And these things come from your lust. And then number eight, we saw this one last before camp about a month ago. Uh, Do you live as though God does not ordain the affairs of men? Or do you somehow live as though you control your own destiny? That came out of verse 14. Uh, Verse 13. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we shall go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, whereas you know not what shall be on the tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor. It appears for a little while, and then it vanishes away. Today we come into our ninth test. There's one more after today. Our ninth test. And our ninth test is found in chapter 5, verses 1 down to verse 6. And I might summarize the test like this. Do you hoard money for yourself? This is a test of whether you're a true believer. Do you hoard money for yourself. Let me read verses 1 down to verse 6, and then we'll walk through it. Verse number 1. Go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just and he doth not resist you. I've titled the sermon for today, Godly Prosperity. Godly Prosperity. There's a right way to handle money. And the question for today, again, is do you hoard money for yourself? The Lord Jesus spoke extensively on finances. The Lord Jesus spoke about money and what you do with money and what money does to you. I'll share a few of those. Luke chapter 12 and verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Perhaps you remember maybe another verse. This would be one of those more famous verses in Scripture talking about money. This would be Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Jesus said, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Money as a God will control you, friend. 
The, the goal here as a true believer is to take my old God and make it serve my new God. That's the goal. If you're a believer, you're no longer controlled by money. Stop worshiping it. Instead, use your old God to serve your new God. That's what happens when the gospel transforms us. It changes the way we are. And you say, well, maybe, maybe money isn't my God. I wonder if instead of money, we could substitute stuff. You know what I mean by stuff, right? A PlayStation 5. I had to Google that this week. We're up to five now. (laughs) PlayStation 5 or a 60-inch TV or a Ford Raptor or a pair of slick Nike shoes or maybe they're R.M. Williams or Oakley sunglasses or a Gucci bag. Stuff. And maybe you can't afford those stuffs, so you'll go with the imitation so it looks like you can afford those stuffs. And it comes back to the same place. The love of money is the root of all evil. No man can serve two masters and you find yourself daydreaming about it. Hey, none of us are exempt from it. I remember being newly married and having a little girl, Ariel is now married, I was younger than she is now, and I had a little girl, her name was Ariel, Becky and I were young, and I saw that my friend had gotten a motorcycle, and suddenly I wanted a motorcycle, and I remember doing everything I could to try to scrounge around and find enough money and Finally, I found one that was for sale, and I was still in uni. I know, some of you are scratching your head. You were in uni, and you were married with a child. Graduated with two of them. I don't recommend it. And there I am in uni class, and I remember that that day, I was going to go, after class, I was going to go and test drive the motorcycle that I was thinking about buying I'll just go ahead and tell you, I had never driven a motorcycle once in my life, and now I'm going to go buy one and drive it. So I went to class that day and sat in class, and I could not tell you the first thing that that class is about, because you know what I spent the entire hour doing? Daydreaming about a motorcycle. We got to the end of the class, and I remember... My heart was smitten, and I've never forgotten about it because when I looked at my notes for that hour of class, my notes looked like a drawing of a motorcycle. It's amazing what the heart will do. The love of money, it it will drive you to want more things, more stuff. An amazing thing that happened when I got that motorcycle, now I needed a matching helmet. And when I got the matching helmet, I needed the matching jacket. And when I got the matching jacket, I needed the matching boots. And now I got the matching boots. It doesn't end. And another friend, he had a bigger motorcycle. I needed one with a bigger engine. It doesn't end, friend. And as I look back on it, what a stupid thing to do as 22 years old with a baby child daughter And I'm supposed to be the breadwinner and take care of her and take care of my wife and kids. An interesting thing that doesn't come with a motorcycle. A bumper doesn't come with a motorcycle. Airbags don't come with a motorcycle. Dent repair is very expensive on a motorcycle. Because that happens to your bones, not the fender. 
things that you don't think about when you're a kid. Money and the love of money and the love of stuff will consume the heart in ways you never expected. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. And you can put in parentheses, in Port Moresby, times ten. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. And you can put in parentheses, Amen. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So where is your treasure? And James repeats these very same words in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. He repeat, repeats some of these very same words. So listen as I read chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, and watch for these words as he says, Go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and, you shall eat, and they shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You've heaped treasure together for the last days. Treasures, moth, rust. Did you hear James repeat the words of Jesus? And as I think about James and his background, and I think of the way that Jesus condemned the Pharisees, do you remember the words that Jesus used against the Pharisees? You have devoured widows' houses. Religious leaders. That didn't end in Jesus' day. It continues till today as some who, instead of preaching godly prosperity, preach a prosperity gospel will stand and say, give what you've got so that God will somehow one day increase His giving back to you. That's rubbish. This is not godly prosperity. Godly prosperity says don't lay up your treasures on the earth. Don't love money. And prosperity preachers will say, give so that it will be given unto you. Oh, this is not the way that God speaks. Instead, Jesus spoke to those religious leaders of the day and He said things like, you've turned my Father's house into a den of thieves. You're taking from those who do not have so that you can line your own pockets. That's a word of condemnation. There's a warning that Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Listen closely. While some coveted after that money, they have erred from the faith. They've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And I can't help but think, as some who stand to say they proclaim the gospel have instead encouraged people to give in ways so that they themselves, who would be commanded to preach the gospel, instead they line their own pockets so that they can build bigger barns. The words that Jesus says about that is, Thou fool. With that in mind, I want to come into our passage today, and I'll just break it down. We'll walk through three things that I see in these verses. Number one, verses 1 to 3, your riches will fail you. Your riches will fail you. 
We'll walk slowly through verses 1 to 3. Verse 1, he says, Go to now, you rich men. Go to now. I don't know if those words echo in your mind yet, but if you'll slide your eyes back up to chapter 4 and verse 13, he used the same words there. Verse 13, he said it, Go to now, you that say, We'll go to that city and we'll continue there for a year and buy and sell and we'll get gain. It's the same phrase that he uses it again in chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, go to now, you rich men. So the last one was, hey, those of you who think you control your own destiny, come on, come together, let's reason. That's the phrase, go to now. Literally, a different way of translating, a different way of saying it in our modern English would be, come on now, think about this. He's not saying go away, but instead, let's think. Go to now, you rich men. Think about this. And here's what he follows it with. It says, weep and howl for your miseries that will come upon you. What are you going to be thinking about? You're going to be thinking about the way you're weeping. Very interesting, the word weep there, because you never think about a rich man weeping. You don't think about, oh, rich men weeping. No. And especially not for this reason. Weep. The word weep, is this word is in the New Testament 40 times. For those of you that study the word, I'll just let that sink into your mind. But that word weep, again and again, is translated from a, it means a deep, a deep mourning. And I've got an example early in the New Testament. In the book of Matthew, this word was there. I'll read it and maybe you rem- it might remind you. This was the death of the innocents. In Bethlehem, do you remember the wise men came to Herod and said, we've come to find the king that was born, king of the Jews? And Herod goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Tell me more. And they tell him, it says that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod sends his soldiers to kill those babies two years old and under. And here's the words from Matthew 2 and verse 18. It's a quote from Jeremiah's prophecy. In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. Can you imagine the weeping that happened in Bethlehem that night as the soldiers went from house to house, literally tearing the children from their mothers and killing them in the streets? The fathers that tried to stand in the way and protect their own families, and probably those fathers killed as well. And I can just think of the weeping, the deep mourning that happened in Bethlehem that night. It's the same word. James chapter 5. Rich men weep and mourn. He uses the word howl here. It's the only time in the New Testament that that word is used. And and it it gives us an idea. You can think of a, a wolf and how with a loud voice he cries out. And can you imagine a human being? I'm going to, from a place of deep mourning, I'm going to weep and I'm going to howl. You don't think of rich men doing that. And James goes, hang on a second. Wait and think about this. Rich men weep and howl for what? For your miseries shall come upon you. You see, your riches will fail you. 
1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, put your trust not in uncertain riches. You see, that's the problem. The problem is that we as human beings tend to put our trust in riches, and yet riches are uncertain. Just as easily as chapter 4 and verse 13 can show us that you don't control the economy, people can put their trust in riches and overnight those riches be torn out from underneath them. And oh, in our lifetimes, we've seen that. We've seen that happen in our lifetime. Global financial crisis 2008 as stock market and global markets crashed around the world and people lost millions and billions overnight to the point that those who had considered themselves to be ultra-rich were immediately thrown into poverty and some of them committed suicide. That's mourning from a deep place. Weep and howl, you rich men. For what? Because your riches are going to come to an end. Your misery will come upon you. And then he continues on in verse 2. Your riches are corrupted. Literally, they're destroyed. And your garments are moth-eaten. James has a thing about tying nice clothes together with riches. He did it back in chapter 2. Do you remember what he said in chapter 2? It was the the passage where he said, you cannot hold the faith of the Lord of glory with favoritism in respect of persons. And then he gave an example in the following verse. He said, said, you might see a rich man walk into your assembly. And you remember the words that he used to describe him? He has a gold ring and he has gay apparel. Fine clothing, literally shiny clothes. And here we are in chapter 5, rich man, you're going to mourn and you're going to howl, you're going to weep because your clothes are moth-eaten. And I can just imagine the rich man as he thinks to himself, I used to go hang out on the, is it the 17th floor of the Stanley? I used to go hang out up there, but now they won't even let me in the front door anymore. I've been dejected. My riches are destroyed, and it's changed who I am. God has given us a warning. We saw it in chapter 2. The rich are not as great as you think they are. We are inclined to look up to the rich, and yet the rich are not as great as we think they are. And you might remember from chapter 2 and verse 5 why that was, because he said, because God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. You see, those who are poor must pray with meaning the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. But the rich don't pray that. They don't think that. They are not rich in faith. You see, money changes a person and who he is. Just last month, you forgive me because I don't follow NRL as closely as I follow NFL, all right? If you don't know what NFL is, American football, all right? And, and that's, that, that's my besetting sin. You can come and talk to me about it later, okay? Last month, a guy, starting quarterback for a team that I follow closely, signed a contract which is currently the largest contract ever signed by a football player 
He signed for 275 million U.S. dollars to play for the next 10 years. At current exchange rate, he got a contract for a billion kina. It's guaranteed. If he falls over from a stroke tomorrow and never plays football again in his life, it's guaranteed he will be paid a billion kina equivalent over the next 10 years. That's mind-boggling. He's always been a humble guy. And it's one of the things that I've liked about him. He's always been a humble guy, and I don't know him personally. He's always been very, they always call him Joe Cool. He's just a nice guy. He talks to everybody. But an interesting thing came up in interviews this last week. His parents have followed him around every time he plays. His parents are there to watch the game. And they've done that high school, uni, now professional football. He signed, somebody interviewed him, and asked him a few weeks after, the, after he signed, they asked him, so what's it like to have this much money? And his answer was, well, if I see something and I want it, I can buy it. What a way to live. They interviewed his parents, and this is where I thought, oh, wow. They interviewed his parents, and his parents said, so what has changed since he got this contract? What has changed? And his dad made this statement, and I don't even know if his dad realized he'd made it. His dad said, my son's too busy for us now, and we haven't had a chance to get together with him. Do you realize what happened? Dude became a billionaire in our currency and doesn't have time for his own mom and dad. I'm sure there's more to that story. But friend, if ever there was an example of the fact that a rich man changes his life. And then in the loss of those riches, deeper mourning comes. Look at verse 3. The way that it's outlined here should cause us to have pause. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Cankered. Your gold and silver has cankered. That's not a word that we use very often, but it may be a word that you recognize. When I hear the word canker, I think of a thing that's called a canker sore. How many people know what I'm talking about when I say a canker sore? Did you know what I'm talking about? There, there's, there's a medical term. It's for the sores that come up in your mouth. Not a cold sore. A cold sore will be on your lips. But you can get a canker sore on the inside of your mouth. Now who, who knows what I'm talking about? Do you ever get a sore on the inside of your mouth? And I'm talking about it hurts really bad. It's a canker sore. I, I live with these. It's a thing that I go through and I celebrate the times when I don't have one. It's a sore, and it seems like it won't go away, and it's constantly painful. It, you touch it, you move your mouth, you begin to talk, it hurts, it hurts. That's a canker. And it says the gold and silver has cankered. Now follow further, and it says, and the rust of them. Hang on a second. You know what rust is. We live in Port Moresby along the sea. We have salt air. We know what rust is. But hang on a second. Silver and gold don't rust. By their very nature, as the elements that they are, they don't rust. Silver will tarnish. 
and you can wipe the tarnish off of silver and it retains its value. Start with an ounce, you end with an ounce. Silver does not rust. Gold also, gold does not even tarnish. Gold will keep it shiny from this day to the months and years behind. It does not rust. And yet here he says, your gold and your silver cankers, literally pox out sores on your riches and it rusts. Here's another way to say it. It lost its shiny. Your riches, the very thing you've trusted, it's become rusty it's not the way it used to be and then it continues on it will be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire could you imagine i'll just use my ring this is my wedding band so please don't take this as pastor matt went and got some fine clothes in a gold ring okay uh, this is my wedding band but could you imagine as a gold ring could you imagine if it went to rust and then taking the words from this verse it began to eat my flesh. I want to get rid of it. I want to take it off of my hand. I don't want this here anymore. It's causing me pain. And he says, that's what's happening with the rich man's riches. Weep and howl for these riches are now not what you enjoyed, but instead they're destroying you. You don't get to have them as a thing. It's eating your flesh as it were fire. And I can just imagine what would that be like? And I think the best example that I've got is those riches have turned you into a person that you never wanted to be. And now with that new mindset of money solves all my problems, those people that you care about that would be the ones who are the closest to you, they've now seen the way that money has changed you and they now move away from you. They don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. And the one thing that you think can draw them in is the one thing that will push them away. I want them to come back to me, so I'm going to buy you things, and they see right through it. I don't want your stuff. I don't want your money. Leave me alone. Because the relationship's been destroyed. You see, your riches will fail you. And I've watched this happen in families. I know of a family that's going through this right now. I will not use names or places example but I know of a family that's going through this right now where mom and dad worked hard to save up an inheritance for their children mom passed away dad still alive and the children wanted to argue over what will happen with the inheritance after dad passes away fractures the family and to be honest, I don't think that they're worried that they're not going to get anything. They're just worried that somebody else is going to get more than them. Oh, how money cankers and rusts and loses its appeal. Go to now, rich men. Take a warning. Your riches will fail you. It will burn like a fire. Your fraud, secondly, your fraud is known by God. Your fraud is known by God. See this in verse number four. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, cries. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. 
there's an underlying caution here. If you love money, you'll cheat those who work for you. If you love money, you'll want that money and you won't even pay your employees the way that you're supposed to. But if you love God, you'll use your old God to serve your new God. And you'll say, I will let this go so that I can show my love for God and show my love for others. But if you love money, you'll cheat your employees. You see, a true believer doesn't act that way. James says, are you a true believer? Examine your faith. If you've got employees, and I speak this to us in here this morning, if you have employees, pay your employees and don't hold their payback. It's a very simple thing, and I know that within our society, it's a thing for which you could get drawn into the Department of Labor for. But I think as I look at perhaps a way that this happens within our society, and I might encourage you to speak up loudly about this, for I've spoken with people, even people within our church who have endured this, where perhaps an employer provides a check that can only be cashed at the employer's trade store. That's wicked. You don't play that game. You're holding back the employee's wages. I don't know of anybody within our, our congregation that's doing that. But if you are, shame on you. And the scriptures here in verse 4 says that there are two who are crying out to God, and He hears it. One is, those wages are crying out. He personifies the money, and He says those wages that should have gone to the employee, those wages are crying out. And then He says the employees also are the ones crying out. He was very clear in the scriptures about this. Here's Deuteronomy 24, in case you need some Bible to help you understand that you're supposed to take care of your employees. Here's Deuteronomy 24, verse 14. Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of the strangers that's in the land of thy gates. So don't delineate, oh, this one's my one talk and that one is some stranger that came in to work for me. Nope, you treat them both the same. At his day thou shalt give him his hire. Neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be a sin unto thee. He says it again in Leviticus. Here's Leviticus 19 and verse 13. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. When I hear things like, I haven't received my pay. I think of Deuteronomy 24 and Leviticus 19. That money is crying out to God at the same time that the employee is crying out to God. And so if you're in a position to make payroll payments, fight with everything you've got against your boss who might want to love money more than he cares about his employees. It's a very practical thing coming from verse 4. Now look closely at the end of verse 4. The cries of them which reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Don't be mistaken, that's not the word Sabbath. It's Sabaoth. It's a word that's been transliterated. In other words, they took the spelling and then redid the spelling into an English version of it. 
And the best way that we can translate this from the Old Testament would be the Lord of hosts. So this is not at all talking about Sabbath. I know it looks a lot like it. It's Sabaoth. Lord of Sabbath would be the one who calls us to rest. The, one of, the Lord of Sabaoth is the one who will go to war. He is the Lord of hosts. And what is that host? It's the host of heaven. And you can just imagine, as the armies of the angels of heaven go to battle, don't you dare think that you'll ever stand against them. And he says, I've heard the cries of the money that's sitting in your bank account, and I've heard the cries of those employees that you've done wrong, and I will swiftly come upon you, and you will weep, and you will howl. Come to now, rich men. If you're a true believer, you won't hold back the right pay from your employees. God's paying attention. If you trust in riches, you'll hoard them. And if you hoard your riches, you'll never have enough. And you'll begin to fraudulently gather them. And you'll push people down. And you'll steal from them, from your, even from your own employees. But God hears it. And God sees it. Your riches will fail you. Your fraud is known by God. And number three, your lifestyle will be your undoing. Your lifestyle will be your undoing. See it in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5. You've lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You've nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and killed the just, and he doth resist you. You lived in pleasure and been wanton. Sometimes we see the word wanton and maybe we think like I want and maybe I need. It's not the word that's here. The word wanton literally means you've lived in luxury. He says, rich men, you're going to weep and you're going to howl. But until then, you live in luxury. You live in pleasure. You have no problem. Sit with a cushiony life. You've been in pleasure on the earth. And he says you've nourished your hearts. And nourished your hearts would be the opposite of you're in malnourishment. Malnourished means you are skinny and you're shriveling up. But you've nourished your hearts. Literally, you've fattened up. And that leads us to that third phrase in the verse that lets us know where is this going. As in the day of slaughter. One kind of sin, papas, I give him kaike to pig. For what reason? You don't give food to the pig just to keep him alive. You give food to the pig so that he'll get fat. And when he gets fat, it's the day of slaughter. You see, your lifestyle will be your undoing. Living in a rich, luxurious, pleasant lifestyle, hoarding riches for yourself, putting others down so that you can get richer because you love your riches. You'll get fat, he says. You'll get to have all that stuff and it'll be the fattening for the slaughter. We'll see verse 6 and I'll come back to that idea of the slaughter. You've condemned, he says, You've condemned and killed the just. Someone that does right, you'll kill him if you need to so that you can increase your own riches. My mind goes back to James 4 and verse 1. From whence cometh wars and fightings among you? Does it not come from your lusts? I wanted more, and so I 
killed if I had to. That was James 4 and 2. You kill. And here, if I've got to, and friends, you and I know the stories that are replete in our newspapers. We know the stories of people who have hoarded and killed to keep the story quiet and heap to themselves. And James says, Go to now, you rich men. You'll weep and you'll howl. This statement at the end of verse 5, he says, You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. I want to circle back around to that statement because there's a part of me that wants to say that one day that slaughter will happen. Part of me wants to say that's going to happen by Satan because it seems like that would normally be the way we would think. But as I look through James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, I don't see Satan showing up at all. I see vengeance being taken out by the Lord of Sabaoth. Who is it that's fattening up the rich man? God is. Maybe I'll paint this picture. Because all of us want to say, if I do right, God blesses me, and I will get things, and I will increase my bank account. And if I do wrong, bad things will happen and I'll become poor. That's the way we want it to work. That's called karma. It's not called Christianity. The scriptures are very clear in Romans chapter 1. The goodness of God brings us to repentance. It doesn't say repentance brings us to the goodness of God. We repent and we get right with God and that's based on His goodness towards us, but that does not guarantee us a fat bank account. And this passage says it that way. You oppress people and you love money, God will let you have it. He will give you over to the very sin that you wanted and He'll let you get fat with it. You'll nourish your heart as in the day of slaughter. For the day will come when God will say, you've got enough and he'll take you out. That's a terrifying thought. James's question overarching today, if you're a true believer, you're not going to be looking to hoard this money for yourself. But there is a godly way to live with prosperity. And so let me close with that idea. I'm going to give us three of them. I hope that you will see practical ways. So what should your godly prosperity look like? First, use your blessing to be a blessing. Use your blessing to be a blessing. You see, God didn't give you things and money so that you can consume it upon your own lust and grow your own fatness. But instead, God has given it so that you can be a channel to bless others. Here's 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. I'm going to pause there for just a moment. If God has blessed you, He blessed you so that you can enjoy it, so don't feel bad about it. But it doesn't stop with your enjoyment. He continues on, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, 
ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So what is it that you're supposed to do with your riches? God gave you riches. It's not so that you can consume it upon your own lust, but so that you can be ready to distribute to others. With your eyes open, where are needs? How can I help? Is there a child who needs school fees? Is there uniforms that need to be purchased? Is there food that needs to be purchased to help a family to get along further along? You see, we are surrounded, brothers and sisters, we are surrounded with people with need. All you have to do is open your eyes. It doesn't mean that you have to give away everything that you've got so that you can help every person that you see. But if you are sitting back, consuming all of it upon your own lust, hoarding into your own basket, the day will come when you will weep and you will howl. Use your blessing to be a blessing. Second, use your wealth to build others, not bigger barns. So, Come with me over to Luke chapter 12. I'm just going to read a few verses there. It's too many to put on the screen, so I'll just read a few verses at Luke chapter 12. I want you to see Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. Jesus gives this example. These are the words of Christ. He said unto them, Luke 12 verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of things which he possesses. If you've ever heard the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins, that's the opposite of what Jesus just said. Jesus just said, the man's life does not consist of the abundance of things that he has. Your life will not be marked by how much stuff you've got. And he spoke a parable, verse 16, unto them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. He's rich to start with, And then he has a bumper crop. What's he do with it? And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said this, This will I do. I will pull down my barns, and I'll build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's normal, carnal thinking. I'll build a bigger barn so that I can sit back and relax. But the problem is, when you have a bigger barn, you need more security guards. God said to him, verse 20, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So use your wealth to build others, not build bigger barns. And the third one, lay up your treasure in heaven, not on the earth. And this is found in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, and we'll finish with this. Jesus said this, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, nor thieves break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So where's your treasure? Do you hoard money for yourself? I hope we take this lesson this morning and examine our faith.
Am I in the faith? Or have I made a God out of money? Father, thank you for the opportunity for us to spend some time in your word this morning. I do pray that we would take to heart the fact that you have all riches. We have no need to gather and hoard them for ourselves. For the fact remains, one day this life will finish. I will go to spend eternity with you if I'm a true believer. I will go to spend eternity with you. And I will not need any of these things that I've accumulated on this earth. But God, I pray that instead of hoarding, we would learn to be giving, living with open hands, transformed by the gospel. For my old man loves stuff, but my new man should love my Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would make you our master, not mammon. For it's in your beautiful name I ask these things. Amen. The Lord bless you, church.